welcome back to episode 49 of the Core Consults RX podcast. I'm Mike Corvino. With me, as always, Cole Swanson. And today we have a super special guest, Dr. Neha Patel. Hi, everyone. Neha, what's going on? How's it going? Good. How are you guys? Living the dream. Doing great. So uh, we've been trying to get Neha on here for a while. Um, I've heard from multiple students at the Medical University of South Carolina that uh, she's a genius and they've gone on and on about how smart she is. And uh, so we we definitely were excited to get you on here because, um, you know, with everyone applying for residencies and whatnot, kind of right now and thinking about interviews and whatnot, um, I think you got some good insights since you've spent a lot of time in that world, obviously. So... Hopefully we can pick your brain a little bit. So no pressure. So you can either steer people in the great direction, or you can just steer them wrong. That's, That's true. Good. Yeah. That's good. It's I'll only... try to steer everyone in the right direction. Okay. Good. Uh, I if... wouldn't. Yeah, I'd go the other way. But... And if not, like you know what, we gotta learn somehow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So uh, um, tell us a little bit. You know, kind of about yourself. Like, uh, you know, what made? How did you decide on pharmacy in the first place? Um, well, actually, I didn't want to be a pharmacist because all I knew was uh, Walgreens. For all you Walgreens listeners, really sorry about that. Um, <laughs> somehow my parents thought it would be a great idea, so I ended up in pharmacy school, uh, and I don't regret it. I think it was when I started rotations that I realized I could do more with it, and that um, kind of geared me into doing more of a clinical practice. Um, I went to St. Louis College of Pharmacy um, and did both my residencies at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. Um, I got into transplant initially because I wanted to do critical care, um, and that's a very saturated job market. And I had one transplant rotation. I absolutely loved it and kind of got experience in both critical care and transplant. And that's kind of how I ended up with a career in transplant. Awesome. That's cool. So what were you thinking before, like they kind of pushed you towards pharmacy? What was your goal when you were younger? Um, it was to be a dolphin trainer. Oh, yeah. Seriously? Seriously. That's what I'm talking about. That sounds way better than being I think everybody's <laughs> secret dream is to do something with marine animals. Like, if I could go back and it didn't matter what I did, I'd probably do, like, marine biology or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Way better. It, it, it does sound pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty... I, I would find a way that it like get... You know, I'd be eaten by a dolphin first person in history. <laughs> well, you'd probably do some of the reptiles. I think. That's true. Yeah. I would. Yeah. But, um... So, <laughs> that's kind of funny that you mentioned that because about the... Your... I guess your idea of what a pharmacist was, I'm always still kind of shocked by that, that in this day and age, like I feel like the majority of people, when they think of a pharmacist, they only think retail pharmacy. Very true. That's, well, when you think about anybody's exposure, like general exposure to pharmacy, it's going to be in a Walgreens or CVS Mm -hmm. for the most part. So growing up, even if you want to be a pharmacist, it's probably what you think, unless you have a family member or friend who does transplant or is doing something clinical or, even if you experienced one in like a um, uh, outpatient clinic setting or something like that, yeah. And 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 I say ugh, not to offend anybody. If you're, I was a community pharmacist in a retail yeah, setting ugh. for a long time. Cole still is, so <laughs> I'm uh, trying to be offensive. I'm just, I I think that because the way that everything's changing, um, I don't see retail pharmacy as being this sustainable model for a long time. I've said that several times on this podcast, and I I want the next generation to kind of see pharmacy for what its potential is, not for only the retail setting so don't be offended by my ugh i think walgreens is actually getting into the mail order pharmacy world like mm-hmm. um like, like a one, specialty yeah within with like um i think they're teaming with like fedex or something to yeah. do one day delivery and yeah. cvs is teamed with like 
USPS or something, all to fight Amazon and PillPay. I was going to say, the problem with that is the fact that they did that as a as a defense against yeah. Amazon. If I wish they had done that 10 years ago so they could have the bugs wired out, because Amazon certainly has no problems with shopping and or, or, uh, mailing and shipping right. and all that. And so um, Walgreens and all them still have to work the bugs out, and it takes a really long time because they're so big. They're, they were very uh, reactive and not proactive, and I feel like that doesn't matter what they do at this point. All Amazon has to do is jump in the game. So just going to get that on the record in case I'm, in case I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> Put some um, money on it. So yeah, yeah. Do. sure. Ten? I got like $10 to spend. <laughs> um, okay, sorry. That was totally off <laughs> off subject. But uh, So when you were in pharmacy school, what you know were you the type A, straight A student? You know, um, or were you just the person who didn't have to go to class and you just were super smart? No, I was not the person that didn't go to class and was super smart. Um, <laughs> I was the type A person that had to study. And actually, I didn't have a lot of exposure to transplant in college. I think we had one lecture and that was kind of it. So all my exposure to it was um, post-training or post-pharmacy school. And the only little bit I knew is we had a family friend that had a kidney transplant. So that was kind of my first exposure, but I was still fairly young when that happened. But... Not a straight A student, but decent grades. So it was during your PGY one that you decided to go for transplant mm-hmm. away from critical care. Yeah, yeah, it was right towards the beginning of it. And you were able to stay on with the MUSC and yeah. finish that up too. I was able to stay on, and so that's part of the reason as well. And I liked the team I worked with, so it was, made it easy. Yeah. How how common is that to have a resident that goes both years of residency and then stays on at that same? teaching hospital. I feel like that's pretty hard to do. It is. I think um, to stay on as a clinical specialist or pharmacist at that institution is hard. It just depends on what's open and what positions are open. There was nothing when I finished my residency. I just came back a few years ago. Um, But I think with more and more requirements for transplant pharmacists, I think there's going to be more and more positions opened. I think there are going to be a lot of centers that expand their services. and a lot of people kind of trying to create some new positions for transplant pharmacists, but it is getting, there's a lot more residencies than there were when I was a resident. Um, So it's growing, that's for sure. Is it growing because transplant in general is growing or just the appreciation of pharmacists in that setting is growing or both? Um, I think a little bit of both. I think in regards to numbers of transplants, they're probably more stagnant, but I think it's more the services and resources that we provide to transplant centers and that's why we're growing yeah so kind of when you were looking at you know different residencies and whatnot walk us through you know briefly like what was your i guess strategy going forward you know you hear all these different tidbits that you give students of what to do to kind of set yourself apart from the crowd because like you said residency programs are growing but also is the desire to go to residency Mm -hmm. uh and so how what would be some advice for students listening that are thinking about that since this is the time of year um, when if they get a call for an interview here in the next couple of weeks, what uh, what should they be expecting to do? Um, I think now, I mean, I think the interview process has changed probably from when I was a resident. I think some of a lot of programs now do um, a lot more behavioral type of questions, which is probably different than what um, was done when I was a resident. Um, I think some other other centers also do a lot with either cases or some sort of almost like a test. Um, when it comes to kind of screening candidates. So something to be prepared for, which you should know ahead of time. You just aren't obviously going to know your case ahead of time. Um, But I know where one or two programs I'd gone to had a case that you had 45 minutes to complete. 
Um, I think the other thing that was a little bit alarming to me when I first interviewed was that you're usually interviewing with six or seven people. So there's also six or seven candidates there. So you're kind of crossing paths with potential people that are competing against you. Um, and you're also interviewing a lot of times in panels as opposed to just one-on-one, -on -one, which sometimes can be a little intimidating. So just to be prepared for that. Um, the other thing is kind of, you can Google a whole bunch of behavioral questions, but be prepared to answer some of those <laughs> throughout the process of the interview. Um, and then some of the big things is why you want to be at that program. So make sure you have a solid reason and uh, don't ask questions that are already on the website. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good point. But I think Brian Gilbert yeah, mentioned he that too. About that. Um, so one of, uh, one of the guys that's been on here a couple of times, a critical care pharmacist out of Kansas, his name is uh, Brian Gilbert. He was telling me that they, and they got a paper published on it, but they did an escape room for the group part oh. of the interviews and they built like an escape room in the hospital <laughs> and the students had to work together to break out of this thing. I thought that was awesome. Yeah. And he did a paper on it. Which yeah. And got cool. Yeah. I uh, think if I saw that, I'd be like, please let me come here. You guys are awesome. <laughs> That's pretty cool. That is but, a good way to show teamwork for a program. Yeah. Especially when you're all nervous and then the, the, uh, like when we did, we did the PA um, interview just to get into PA school and we were, they had to like build like a tower, you know, of, you know, balloons. It was something very arbitrary and there really was no right answer. We just wanted to see how, and like, how quickly the personalities come out is mm -hmm. pretty interesting. Well, it wasn't it wasn't residency, but for pharmacy school, one of the schools had like the whole group choose. There's like a list of items, and you had to choose like three that you would take to a deserted island or something like that. Oh yeah, those are good ones. I don't know. I didn't love it, but you know, maybe that's just me. I would just pick the three most ridiculous, <laughs> random things, and just see if I could improv my way through it. <laughs> Through a, uh, a, a like like why I would actually bring those. You're right. like, what is wrong with this guy? He balloon makes, animals. He's making some. Be... He's making some good points though. Oh, balloon animals. That would be a good one. Yeah. One. It's a one of the people that uh, I'm assuming I'm allowed to say this. One of the people that interviewed for and got a you know was in that group for the PA school that was trying to pass the balloon tower test had been a a professional or some a very high level like animal balloon person <laughs> and just crushed the competition. What are the odds? Oh my He's gosh. like, yes, I knew this would come in handy. I told you mom. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I, I never, I didn't see it myself, but I had heard about it later and they said his tower was amazing. So he's basically a clown. Yeah. He was a I, clown at some point. How dare you? He might've done it at that's the children's a hospital for y'all you know. That's a respectable profession. It's scary to some people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Clowns are kind of freaky. Yeah. yeah they can be. Thanks a lot, it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> It's all Stephen King's fault. I know. Never trusted that guy. Anyways, um, what uh, what are some like absolutely? You, you mentioned a great one, which is don't ask questions that are on the website. That would be hilarious. But um, what are some other like absolutely don'ts? Do you have any that could come to mind? Like if you're um, conducting interviews. Yes, I think some. Obviously, salaries um, don't just because you're a resident. Um, I think another big one that comes up um, is staffing. So how many weekends and whatnot mm -hmm. you work. Um, Brian but, mentioned that too, I think. Yeah, those are things that shouldn't make or break your program choice. So those are things pretty much not to ask Yeah. Um, throughout the process. I think there's things that you can ask about. You know, there's programs that take call and how those kind of systems work. But in regards to just the weekends and whatnot, those are probably questions not to ask. Right. So it just makes you sound... Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, pretty much. Uh, I have to work how many weekends <laughs> right. during one year of my life? Right. That sounds right. awful. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm, I'm always fast, especially like when you see some of the residencies that, you know, if you were to actually be like a, a transplant surgeon, how long you have to get a residency. Right. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I get it. It's a really hard couple of years, but 
it could be three times longer. <laughs> could be. So, yeah, anyways. Um, so when you kind of made that transition from student to a resident, you know, what was the, what were some of the, like, I guess, hardest parts of that? Like, was that an easy transition for you or was that like, because I feel like that's a big jump from when you're on rotation as a P4 and, you know, you have, you always have 15 people above you that you can ask questions to, even if you're the one, quote unquote, making recommendations. Um, how is that being a resident where sometimes you are the one rounding? So I do think it's a big transition because you also go from being a student straight to a pharmacist. So you do have a license, um, which is always kind of scary. Um, so I think the transition is, you know, you can make it what you want it to be. I think you have to remember you always have resources and you have preceptors to go to. I think the biggest challenge is for um, the practitioners that think they go straight from student to residency and all of a sudden they know everything. Um, those are probably the most dangerous um, individuals. So I think just knowing your limits is probably the biggest thing. And also the things that you learn um, in residency is so much different than what you've learned in school. Um, it kind of puts everything together. There's going to be so much during residency you see that isn't something you learned. So everything is a learning opportunity as opposed to a test on whether or no you know the answer. A lot of it is your ability to find an answer and how you go about it as opposed to actually knowing it right off the top of your head. Yeah, that's a good point. Too. And I think that's in it really any setting too is I, this sometimes I'm, I'm always kind of shocked when I, if I ask a student something, and then, like, they're, if they don't know, it's kind of like, well, they don't really necessarily know where to look. I'm like, there's so many resources there. And I think that's such a humongous opportunity for growth personally. And when you ask school, too, is having those resources already set up and knowing where to look and, you know, continuing to grow that way. Because there's no way you could possibly know everything about even a small portion of medicine. So, And I guess um, students can take comfort in the fact as well, transitioning that even though you are a pharmacist and you do have to make decisions, if you're in a significant bind, you can always go to a preceptor and get yeah. another opinion. Right? And there's a lot of times that we get asked questions and we don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. And it's figuring it out and finding resources um, to help guide that answer. So I think that's also a learning thing that we as preceptors also don't know the answer yeah. all the time. How does it work? And this may be an ignorant question, but um, in regards to a, a pharmacist role, because, um, you know, if you, there's so many different types of transplants. Do you have to actually specialize in a certain type of transplant or is it just transplant in general? So most programs are transplant in general. So it just depends on each center and what that center particularly specializes in. Um, so when I was a resident, my training was primarily kidney, liver and some heart. I had no experience with lung transplant because we didn't do them. Um, I took a job in lung transplant <laughs> and somehow managed to learn it. Nice. Um, in a high volume center for that matter. Um, but now our, our program does all organs. So it's kind of nice because our residents are kind of well-rounded. But there are centers that just do abdominal and there are centers that just do thoracic. And I don't think it um, that means that that's the only organ you can function in. I think it just teaches you the baseline and you can carry that forward to other organs right um i think if you're trained in solid organ you can probably pick up any organ it just takes a little bit if you're not um used to it what uh what was the hardest thing for you as far as transition from pgy1 to 2 and was it a kind of a real smooth transition or was there a big switch um i think for me it was relatively smooth because it was at the same center um you know i think there's plus and minuses with that i think one um the advantage is you don't lose a month of orientation. You kind of already know the system. You don't have to train. 
I think all those are big advantages of staying at an institution. Um, obviously, if you go somewhere else, you learn different practices, you meet different people, which I think is um, equally valuable as well. Um, I think the biggest kind of transition, though, going from a PGY-1 to PGY-2 is oftentimes as a PGY-1, um, there's a little bit more kind of hand-holding. Um, and when you, you know, get into your specialty, it's kind of you're almost thrown into it with support. But staying at the same program, you're kind of just expected to know some of the things and the routine things um, that kind of carry on from day to day. I do think the learning curve is much different, but I also think it's more fun because it's what you're going to be doing. So, you know, it's what you chose to do for an entire year. So you're not doing some of these rotations that you don't care for that are required. Um, your one year is primarily focused on what you're going to do. So it feels a lot less scholastic and more like yes. you're actually doing your job now. You're, you're doing your job and you're learning and you're starting to become a practitioner. Because I think when you're on rotations as a PGY-1, it's great. But by the time you get into the swing mm -hmm. of a rotation then you're ready to shift into the next rotation. Kind of so, like P4 year. Yeah, yeah, so right when you figured it out, especially for some of the more complicated rotations like transplant or any of the ICU things where you don't have a lot of that in school, by the time you get in the swing of things, it's ready to move on. Right. So kind of walk me through, like when you finished you know, residency and you actually got your job, and um, you know, I, I, from what I've heard, and I've heard this from multiple people, you are extremely well-respected by the attendings as well. Um, that they go to you for everything and, you know, anything med related, they're calling you up and bugging your phone 24 seven. Mm -hmm. And, uh, how, you, you know, how, how did you, did you go about, did it just kind of happen over time or cause one of the big, I feel like struggles for a lot of people and, and, you know, as pharmacy kind of progresses, people are still pharmacists in general, still trying to find like earn the respect, I guess, or, you know, you'll see some people that just want that respect as a PharmD because they have some letters after their name, but MDs and whatnot don't always reciprocate mm -hmm. that. And, uh, so how, how did you kind of navigate that aspect of it? So I think when I first started, um, when I went to a different institution, it's a little bit more difficult, um, just cause they don't know you yet. I think the big thing is to prove yourself. Um, I think the other big thing is that you need to prove that you work just as hard, um, and kind of be available to them for questions and whatnot. And I think you have to be willing to bring something to the table um, when you're first starting out. I think when you go back, when I came back to MUSC, I think it was just one of those things they already knew who I was, so it's an easy person for them to contact. Um, but I think the biggest thing is to be able to know, know what you're doing. I mean, if you have no clue what you're doing, they're not going to respect you. And I think it takes time when you come into a new center. Um, the one advantage, I think, is that as more and more programs are having residencies, I think providers are seeing what we actually can do and what we offer because there is somebody that is always on service or there's someone that they can kind of call, and I think that helps. So an institution that's been used to pharmacists, I think, gets that respect a little bit quicker than institutions that don't necessarily have that. So what attitude do you think would work better in those beginning stages um, like I know what I'm doing, so I'm going to push my recommendations on you and prove to you that I know stuff, or is it more like, well, I'm going to sit back and observe and let you come to me. And then when you ask me questions, then I'll prove to you that I know stuff. Um, I think it depends on who you're working with. Um, I think medicine is different than surgery and I work with surgery. So I think, um, you know, I work with a lot of hot headed he people mm. or I used to not so much anymore. I think surgeons have also come around the corner mm -hmm. a lot and they're very different to work with now. Um, and I think with them, it's more of a, 
you don't have 30 minutes to explain yourself. So if you want something done, here's why, prove it to me and call it a day. Yeah. Um, on the medicine side, I think you need to prove, um, you have more time to prove yourself and they want to know more in detail all the things that you're talking about. So you have 20 minutes to say, well, this study showed yada, 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 and this study showed, and that's what they want to hear. Yeah. Um, but I also think with any new job, probably the first couple of months, you kind of sit back and you just kind of take it all in. Um, as opposed to walking in on day one with this power trip. Right. Um, the other thing is always remember there's more than one answer. So no matter how much you think your answer is always right, it's, there's multiple ways to do it. Right. And so the more you push for your way or no way makes it more difficult. Yeah. So know your audience. Know your audience. That's good. Um, how, uh, how have you gone about like staying current, like with new recommendations and guidelines and studies and whatnot? What's, do you have a certain strategy that you use to stay up to date with everything? Cause I feel like that's a ever changing world and research is kind of constantly coming out. So yes, it is ever changing. I do actually think residents and students kind of help with that because as they're reading about topics, um, they're bringing new things to you. Um, I think one of the easiest ways is to sign up for table of contents for journals that are pertinent to your path. So I have a lot of transplant journals. Um, so you get one email a month that gives you the table of contents. So it's kind of nice for you to peruse and just see what's out there. And so at least you know what's coming out instead of kind of looking for it. It's coming to you, which I think is a nice way. Absolutely. Make the process automated. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think that's, did you start doing that? Like when you, cause I always advocate for people to start that even while they're in school, like having articles. I, I've heard students be like, well, you know, I'll do that as soon as I get out and you know, I'll start kind of paying attention to the new information and whatnot once I finish school. Cause right now I already have all this new information coming at me. So I, I personally usually advocate for them to spend like five or 10 minutes a day reading something that has nothing to do with their curriculum to just get in the habit of it. So when they do get out and they have more time, it's just kind of a natural part of their day. Um, do you have, what's your thoughts on that for students? Do you, I think that's a good way. I mean, I, I started this year, which I think has helped my own residents um, instead of spending hours upon hours a week doing topic discussions is you pick one article a day that you're going to read and we're going to talk about it. So, you know, it usually ends up being about three times a week, um, three to four times a week, but nothing extensive, but it's something either that you found, something that was patient related um, to kind of build their library and kind of keep them reading as well. Um, I think that's a big thing um, that people forget that, you know, once you feel like you've learned everything, you haven't, and there's a lot to learn. Um, the one other strategy, which I tell my residents now, which I had wish I would have done on my own, is if you're still in the age of printing and writing notes, um, it's probably best that you upload those <laughs> as the what? article <laughs> instead of your regular article, so that way you have it later with your notes. Um, so something to think about doing if yeah. you're not doing that already. I usually carry a backpack around me with just all my hard copies. Yeah, with all your hard copies, yeah. yeah. <laughs> People uh. laugh at me, but I don't care. <laughs> Got them all that. They're filed away and yeah. you can find them quickly. No, yeah. I can't. I just buy if I actually had something like that, it'd be the most disorganized disaster <laughs> you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. Just a bag full of papers. Yeah, I, I can't even barely organize it on my iPad, let alone <laughs> actual physical papers. Yeah, so have some organization method. Absolutely. Yeah, that's for Whatever sure. Whatever works. I am. I mean, I get the whole like people are like I just like to have feel the paper. I'm like, okay, I got it, but just feel your iPad. <laughs> yeah. Just feel your iPad. And if you like the paper, then write on it and then upload it. Yeah. And yeah. therefore, for it's sure. like there for you in the future. Yep. 
with all your notes on it. Or get notably, I don't know if you guys have used that yet, and you get an eye pencil. That, that new, the annotation. Yeah. 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 You, can make, you can change it to look like pencil, which is cool, and then it feels just like a regular... Not everybody can afford the it's, iPad Pro mic. You could go garage sailing and flip some stuff <laughs> okay. to find enough to buy an iPad or a, a pencil for the iPad. <laughs> Anyways. Mike um, has all the stuff. I like, yeah. I like tech toys. If it's out there, he's got it. That's not true. Um, but uh, is it cool if we kind of go through some of these questions a yeah. little bit from, from Insta? Yeah. Um, so pulling them back up here. Um, I put it on Instagram just to see if anybody had any questions. Um, but uh, the, the big one that people keep, uh, a couple of people have asked about now, is pain management and transplant. Got some thoughts on that, perhaps? Yeah. Pain management seems... Well, so first, the pain management thing is kind of uh, all around, not just for transplants, become a hot topic of managing opioids and whatnot, and likely a lot because of the opioid epidemic and patients just dying because of over, overdoses. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of emails that have been going around and how to manage pain and what centers are doing and whatnot. And so we've recently changed our kidney transplant protocol. Um, previously to September, I guess we changed it September 1, um, all of our patients went home on 60 oxycodone, which is a lot for, you know, not a minor surgery, but not a major surgery. Um, so there's a lot of centers that send them home on nothing. And so we thought we'd get on that bandwagon. Um, so we've had a lot of things where we've given them nerve blocks and we use scheduled Tylenol and gabapentin. And so far that's worked pretty well. Our patients that are chronic, chronic opioid uh, users, they kind of go home on opioids because we're not going to break that habit in three days for them. Um, but for the most part, we've looked at our initial um, numbers and we've only sent home a few handful of patients on pain meds. So I think the big thing with it is um, it requires a lot of buy-in. So it requires a lot of buy-in from everybody on your team. So nurses being big um, kind of advocates and kind of explaining to the patient what we're doing, the things that are in place, and kind of um, really assessing their pain as opposed to just kind of getting this arbitrary number. Um, so the, you know, that requires some time. I think the biggest buy-in or the hardest people to kind of rein in are the residents because um, they just like to hand out things like that uh, when people ask for it. But with a lot of education, I think it works. I think, you know, if you can educate patients ahead of time, I think it's very helpful. Um, I just think the time it takes for somebody to get on um, the kidney transplant list and then transplant it is years. So if you educate them four years ago, they're not going to remember anything. Um, but I think the big thing is education and why we want to be doing it and telling patients the concerns of narcotics. So these are kidney transplants in particular? Yeah. Okay. Our other organs still go home on narcotics. They're a much bigger surgery. Gotcha. So kidneys more. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, to me, that seems like a good procedure, but I guess relatively yeah. speaking. Relatively speaking, it's a minor procedure. Um, the rest of our organs go home on pain meds. Most of the time, at least for liver, we say that first fill is all you get. Um, every once in a while we'll fill again, but for the most part, they get the 60 tablets and that's it. So some people have mixed feelings about gabapentin for various reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, it works for this. Yeah, I mean, it works for this. It's, you know, there's a lot of studies that say they get, you know, these big doses prior to the OR and they get a big dose before they go to the OR. Um, and we titrate it as need be as a, you know, on the inpatient side and they get our kidneys leave on post-op day three, they get five days worth of gabapentin. And most of them, 
don't ask for refills, don't ask for more. The only patients that we um, kind of change are patients that were on chronic gabapentin. They obviously stay on their chronic right. gabapentin for whatever reason or Lyrica, whatever they were on. Um, but patients that are completely opioid naive usually do okay with it. And plain Tylenol, not with codeine? <clears throat> no codeine, just plain Tylenol. Wow, that's scheduled. fascinating. One gram, Q6 hours scheduled. So cut, cut my kidney out, replace it, give me some gabapentin for five days and good and to go. You'll be good to go. We'll that's give you, fascinating. We'll, we'll Versus you... Percocet for a, a filling to yeah. get at the dentist's office. We'll, <laughs> we'll give you a nerve block too on the way, just in case. <laughs> that's funny. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome though. Didn't, yeah. didn't you say that, I think this was you that was telling me this, wasn't there like a surgeon from another country that came in and was like stunned that we were like using... I think, I, I don't know if it was me, but I think there's a lot of places that um, are very alarmed with what we do. I do have an ortho surgeon that I know well that um, does mission work in um, South America, and they don't do pain meds. I mean, it's, they're not available Yeah, right. Um, for these massive operations, and they get Tylenol. I think crisp high five and Tylenol. Mm-hmm. <laughs> crisp high five. That's how it rolls. Yeah, no, respect. <laughs> Yeah. The um yeah that that is interesting especially with such a you know it, opioid epidemic being talked about in every area of medicine I feel like that is that is cool that um you guys are doing that. The uh is there any the, do you know if they're looking at like duloxetine or um Lyrica or any of those in particular to gabapentin or comparing them or is it just always gabapentin seem to be the go-to right now? I think the go-to seems to be gabapentin just cuz it's got a short half-life, it's not controlled, it's easy to get. Lyrica is still controlled. Um, so that's why we haven't been using Lyrica. Mm-hmm. If our patients are on Lyrica, they stay on it, mm-hmm. obviously, and we don't switch them, but as a just go-to med, gabapentin. Cool. Yeah. Um, so we got another question from, uh, from Philip. He's actually a uh, student at the medical university. Um, but he was asking what kind of, uh, I guess, barriers do you have uh, post-transplant? Like what's your, what are the biggest challenges you have? Is it like keeping patients on their medications? Is it uh, follow-up? You know, what, what kind of things drive you crazy? Um, I think for the most part, I mean, you know, they go through a lot of screening prior to getting listed and whatnot. And obviously things fall through all the time. Um, but for the most part, our patients do come to clinic. We do have our handful that don't. Um, so I think the most frustrating part is the patients that, that don't value what they have. Um, you know, and you don't see that a lot, but you do have your handful that, you know, take it for granted that don't come to clinic or, you know, their social system falls apart. So they have no ride or they have no meds. And, um, and because of that, you know, obviously their organs start to fail, but if no one's notified, we can't help them. Right. And there's a lot of resources to, you know, that can be used for some of these patients. Um, but I think that's the most frustrating part is for the most part, people value what they have. But I think there's a small handful that just take it for granted. Yeah. Um, another question the asked if, did you kind of do your first year of residency? Was it just very general um, or were you on like a track that kind of pushed you towards more critical care transplant type? Uh, rotations for your first year before you went into your specialty? So I think when I had done my first year, I had kind of tracked it to be a little bit more critical care based. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had a lot of critical care rotations. I had two transplant rotations. Um, So I kind of did make it a little bit more um, transplant critical care based, which I think helped. Are there residencies available um, that are basically like two year specialties or like, or does it, every one of them kind of have a very general first year that you can, you know, maybe tailor a little bit, but still pretty general. 
I think for the most part, they're pretty general. I think the couple of the two years are um, like an ambulatory care mm-hmm. one. And your first year maybe has, you know, most places require one month of ambulatory care. I think if you're that ambulatory care um, specialty kind of two-year program, I think the you have a couple more months of ambulatory care. Um, same with management. I think there's a two-year management one that also kind of tailors it more to management and a little less clinical your first year. But for the most part, I think they're all pretty general with their required ones for each center. Um, you know, now that you've kind of been doing, you know, liver and um, kidneys for a while, do you feel like you could jump into, you know, heart, heart transplants or lungs or anything? Is it, is it pretty easy to kind of go to a different area or is that like completely different thinking and different process and all that? Um, I think it's, it's relatively easy. I, I mean, easy yeah, to, easy right, to right, lose right. term. Right. Um, but I, you know, I've done a lot of lung transplants, so it's easier for me to jump into it for our, the way our current system works. It's kind of nice cause we do cross cover. So we do have exposure to all organs that, you know, those two are not my primary organ. Um, but I can jump in and kind of at least have an idea of what's happening and, we're kind of all involved when it comes to protocols and updating all that for all, all, all organs. So we kind of stay up to date, which is kind of nice. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if, if you had to switch, or I guess if you just felt compelled to switch to something like, um, you know, I don't know, ambulatory care or something like that, would you, would you have to basically, um, go back and since, since you're not do that primarily, would you, do you feel like you'd have to basically go repeat another residency or would you have to just kind of get on, on the job training? Like I'm asking that just because I do have people every once in a while, not so much that are in a specialty to go out, but people who didn't start in a specialty and then want to maybe specialize at some point. Um, so I guess from either way, but which, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Like, do you think going back and doing another residency is a thing or would it more on the job training at that point? Um, I think after years, I think on the job training could work. Um, I think if you're in this completely non-clinical realm and all of a sudden want to jump in, I think going back to do a residency is probably the most marketable way mm-hmm. to go back and get a clinical job. I know that was a super weird question. I just kind of like... It came to mind and I was like, ah, it just came out of my mouth. So sorry to put you on the spot, no. but I was just curious. Yeah. Um, and I have, I've had friends of mine and stuff that are practiced for three or four years, like in a, just this uh, dispensing role at a hospital. And then we're like, you know what? Doing residency now. And they went back and did it. They have some non-traditional residencies that do that where you're kind of working and doing a residency at the same time. So it's taking you two years to complete yeah. a PGY-1. I saw some of that in peds when I was at MUSC. Some people do non-traditional. Yeah, there. I think one of them is a peds um, pharmacist yeah. that was doing it. So that's something I feel like that's kind of coming up and about as well. Um, what about? Is there a board certification of any kind for transplant? Oh yes, it's coming out. Is it? Are yeah. you getting it? It's new on the block. <laughs> Are you gonna be the first one at MUSC? No. Um, I can't, I think it rolls out in either 2020 or 2021. Are you super psyched? No. <laughs> Don't want to take a big test. Come on. Cause you have your BCPS, right? So yeah. now, now you can get two, all these extra letters. No, it's all just letters. extra money that I'm dispensing no. to what? somebody. What? <laughs> Nonsense. That's, there's no way that's it. It's a money making scam. There's no way Come that's on. it. Yeah. How dare you? <laughs> 
I've been practicing for 10 years. I don't need a test anymore. <laughs> That's true. We're going to sponsor you for the test just because I want to see it. <laughs> yeah, we, we'll give out the core console to our ex, uh, scholarship. Sponsorship yeah. to board certification. <laughs> we actually probably have a lot of applicants. <laughs> <laughs> Free money? Oh, yeah. yeah, we yeah we'll take applicants. that. These idiots are going to give us money. <laughs> There you go. But um, yeah, I, did, I was I, I was thinking about that because I mean I've seen critical care and all those, but I hadn't yeah. thought of a transplant, so they, they yep, finally got around to the right one. It's coming out. Would you uh, Would you ever want to be involved in actually writing one of those type exams? I think it'd be fun. Yeah, yeah, that'd be <laughs> hardcore. How do you get How do you get to be that level? I, know, I don't know. I think it, you'd be surprised at who who writes them. Yeah. I don't. I don't think it's like it's not like some super special. They just. You get you know the people. You just know and, a guy. Yeah, you know a guy. I know Bill. He's gonna let me write some questions. <laughs> He's gonna yeah. write these questions. I'm not even a pharmacist. I'm really banking on that. Pretty much my whole career <laughs> is just meeting just Bill, knowing people. <laughs> just knowing people and being like, I mean, I don't know. He's kind of fun to hang out with. I guess we can let him help. Yeah, there you go. That's how it rolls. <laughs> so I've made a living at that. So, so before we finish up, take us through um, day in the life where you start. Does every day generally the same, or do you swap floors? Like uh, I don't know, every day. Um, for me, generally, it's around, it's the same. There's three of us that do transplant. We kind of um, have our homes, and then we rotate a little bit, but we kind of stick with our home. Um, so I primarily do inpatient um, most of the time. Um, I do a couple months of outpatient, and um, I also have clinic days kind of while I'm rounding on my service. So usually, if for, to, for example, tomorrow, <laughs> I'll come in, I'll look at my patients, I'll have clinic in the morning, I round at some point during the day, whenever that happens. Um, we do a lot of kind of the, obviously, medication management for our inpatient service and our clinic patients. Um, we do a lot of the, we do all the drug monitoring, all the follow-up that's kind of put on us to do, all the lab ordering is kind of on us. Um, we also have, just based on CMS type of things, we have certain requirements, so there's a certain amount of documentation that needs to go in the chart um, and whatnot. Um, some time for teaching because I have a student, so that'll happen. Um, so yeah, each day is kind of, it just depends. Sometimes it's really busy, sometimes it's kind of slow, which is nice. Um, you know, I kind of like the mix of seeing inpatient, outpatient. It kind of gives us the opportunity to see the patients that are doing well mm -hmm. and kind of be able to follow up. And you're the continuity of care oftentimes. Our surgeons rotate every week, so we're kind of the only ones that stick around stick mm -hmm. around and keep track of the people that have been there for a long time, which is kind of a, a nice perk to the job. Right. I think that's why they rely on us so much is because we're the ones that are there right. all the time. And you have a student pretty much year-round in residence as well? Um, we usually have we usually take four res students a year on each side of the street, so on heart and lung and abdominal gotcha. and then residents for the most part we have a resident almost every month whether gotcha. it's our own transplant resident or pg-11 yeah rotating yeah cool what for your clinic days um are you actually are you just like following up with the patient to see how they're doing in general or do you have like a collaborative practice where you can change doses and re-prescribe okay. or how does that work so we don't necessarily have a collaborative practice but we kind of function like that so um i primarily when i'm inpatient do liver clinic that's like my my home per se home base um so we usually see the patient then our nurse practitioner will see the patient or our surgeon whoever um so we'll kind of go through all the meds um we'll adjust things based on labs if we need to um we have kind of full authority to do things for like a primary um like primary care medicine so like blood pressure all that they let us do whatever that's cool whatever we want and then um, we'll follow up on drug levels with the coordinator 
after clinic and we can adjust accordingly. So we get a lot of autonomy, which is a great kind of a yeah. fun thing about transplant, I think, which is unique, um, which makes it a lot of fun. Awesome. That's awesome. Cole, you got any other uh, questions or anything? Unless you want to throw in a sound effect just because we can. It's Ooh, that was a long one. That was a long one. Uh, see, Nahal, you don't have that kind of quality in just any podcast. No, you, no don't. you don't. It's a lot of fun. The Insta guys are probably like, what in the world are they talking about? Because they can't hear that, can they? No, probably. No, no, no they definitely <laughs> can't. The They're just like, why are they just looking at each other laughing? <laughs> yeah, so if you're watching on Instagram and think we're weirdos, that's that's why. We're basically children. Yeah, it's true. It's <laughs> a good point. Um, but yeah, so Nahal, we appreciate you being here. It's uh, I know you're busy, so I appreciate you taking the time to do this. It was fun. Um, and then, uh, if, if you guys have questions or anything like that, then, uh, you know, send us an email and I will, uh, if they're good enough questions, maybe forward them on to Neha and <laughs> see, see if she can get you some answers. So, um, the, our email addresses will be in the, the show notes and then, uh, you know, the descriptions if, depending on what platform you're looking at, but, um, reach out to us. And, uh, if you have other questions in general, you can reach us on any of the social media platforms, any podcast platform. Uh, and then if you do follow Throw us a subscribe. It would really mean a lot to us. And then, uh, you know, we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you guys next time. Thank you.